You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Joining us this hour from Australia is Helena Norberg Lodge. She founded Local Futures, International Society for Ecology, and their mission is to protect and renew ecological and social well-being by promoting a systematic shift away from economic globalization towards localization. Their Education for Action programs give us wonderful ways of seeing innovative models and tools to, quote, catalyze collaboration for strategic change at the community and international level, as their website accounts. Just as large-scale, though, monoculture farming is destructive to the land, monoculture economics, they point out, is no different in the sense that it destroys local cultural soils and local community consumers who are taught to value foreign products over local ones. I learned of Helena through a superb article she authored and which I posted at zoharaonline.com. It's called How Globalization Fuels Terrorism and Fundamentalism, and I thought her perspective so important that we're going to share it tonight. Thank you so much for joining us, Helena. Thank you. Happy to be here. Your work in this area of recognizing the impact of the globalization of economies really started for you more than 40 years ago in India. So maybe we should start there where you did as a, as a younger person when you started the Ladakh Project. Yes, I, I had my eyes open to this because I was thrown into this very unusual situation of a culture It's called Ladakh. It's West Tibet and up high on the Tibetan Plateau, a region about the size of Austria, quite quite big, but with isolated villages scattered on this desert plateau at about 12,000 feet. And these people had not been colonized, and nor had they been economically developed um, because they'd been sealed off for political reasons until the mid-'70s. And I arrived there as one of the first foreigners. I learned to speak the language fluently. And I encountered a people who who were healthier and happier than any people I had ever encountered. I became so fascinated. I had come out originally as part of a film team. I was a linguist. But I was only planning to be there for, for six weeks. But I ended up st- planning to stay on because I fell in love with the place and the people and I was working on the language to start with. And I did find over these 40 years, having worked with the people there and going back almost every year and, and in the early days spending half of every year there, that this happiness, which appeared almost unbelievable because there was just such a sense of humor, vitality, and, and health, um, that I was, you know, so totally amazed, couldn't quite believe it. it. Took me many years to realize just how real it was, and partly that became very clear because of the unhappiness that came in, along with foreign investment and foreign and outside businesses coming in, and essentially destroying, especially destroying local farming, but really destroying any small-scale local production, and even services like health care that was provided in the traditional way, replacing it with uh, essentially an economic global monoculture that is destroying local 
local economies and local cultures worldwide. Now, that, of course, became more apparent later on. I, I wrote a book about these changes I saw, having witnessed the creation of unemployment, you know, which had never existed before, having witnessed this fast urbanization, pulling people into a few urban centers, and the pollution, the breakdown of family and community and so on that happened. I wrote a book about that, and we also made a film based on that called Ancient Futures. That was translated into almost 50 languages. So I heard from and I was in touch with groups and, and thinkers and community groups from around the world, from every continent, and I realized that this is actually a global pattern. One Sorry for such a long-winded introduction. No, well, I, I think it's really important because, as you and I both know, this is not a perspective that's talked about in the media because the media is part of this monoculture and part of globalization and part of sort of the homogenization of worldview to the point that indigenous peoples are looked at as inferior and their talents and their tribal you know, ancestries and traditions somehow or other not up to speed. And I think that what you're showing is the same thing that anybody working with any indigenous peoples anywhere on the planet now knows is true, that this effort to yes. globalize has destroyed everything yeah. but the World Bank, the IMF, and the global corporations who get these contracts and they build roads that go nowhere. And a, a beautiful book by um, John Perkins, you know, who wrote Confessions of an Economic Hitman, really shows this nation taking as I refer to it. So having identified this reality, you you point out that, you know, most of us in the modern world, we can't quite understand the Islamic State or ISIS and the beheadings, the, quote, rapes and other acts of cruelty, you write, seems beyond understanding, as does the wanton destruction of priceless ancient monuments. So explain to us how, then, this exportation of globalization fuels, if it is, even the recruitment of Westerners from Europe, men and some women, into this kind of... Um, just rampant destruction of life. Well, I feel I did get a bird's-eye view of this, and I, I want to also say that I worked in Bhutan, which is a better-known place. Ladakh is still quite unknown, over a five-year period, and I saw, you know, step by step the changes that also led to violent conflict there. And there the conflict was between Buddhists and Hindus, in Ladakh, it was between Buddhists and Muslims. But I also realized, as I went back to Scandinavia, I'm originally from Sweden, that many of the campaigns in all the Scandinavian countries, there were campaigns not to join the EU. And that was because we recognized that it was an economic union that was not about improving our well-being and that it was going to be very threatening to the environment, to democracy, to our culture, our values, because it was centralizing and homogenizing. And so this, um, yeah, the picture that I'm trying to share really does come from a lot of experience and a lot of contact with people from every con continent. And what happens in discussing these issues with people from, from every continent and, you know, in effect about 50 different countries is that we have a view from the bottom up, from the experience of daily life lived by real people, 
and the experience of what's happening to their ecosystems, to their water, to their soil, to their air. And that view from the bottom up is what I feel we desperately need to get out. I, I think we're, you know, we're facing a situation right now where our leaders, and that includes the leaders in, in Sweden and virtually every government that I know of, is actually being pressured from above, and this is from a deregulated, out-of-control economic system, which has become almost like a machine, and is pushing every society in the same direction. And so that direction is what I got a bird's-eye view of in Ladakh and Bhutan in the early stages, because what, what was going on was that in order to live more sustainably off their own resources, to use their water and their land in a way that could provide for themselves, they had a decentralized demographic pattern. Yes, they had, you know, trading centers, which were like, you know, the capital towns or small cities where a lot of the major trade went on, but they did not have a process of economic pressure that pulled virtually everyone into a few cities to look for work in a completely different economy, not based on natural resources, but based on the concentrated economic power of essentially external banks and corporations. Now, that urbanization is fundamental to the destruction because what it does is it creates artificial scarcity. So, you know, I, I witnessed how in a place that had never, ever known unemployment, now suddenly the, the message was working on the land or doing, you know, jobs in small towns and small shops and small places is worthless. If you want to be somebody, if you want to earn money, you've got to come into these urban centers, and so suddenly you have all these people pouring in and essentially looking for non-existent jobs. And what happens very rapidly is that that centralization of economic power, which also is linked to centralization of political power, creates intense competition for scarce jobs, for scarce resources, which are now funneled through centralized external institutions and banks. Now, this is also what happened during the colonial era. So a lot of the violence that we witnessed in Africa, in India, after uh, the colonial powers left is that because they had so centralized and industrialized economic activity, created such intense competition between different ethnic and religious groups, uh, very often there was you know, tremendous violence after the colonial powers left. Um, and, and, you know, very often, you know, it's just assumed that this violence and that conflict has always been there, that it's part of the human condition and particularly part of tribal primitive life that is based on constant friction. Our experiences is exactly the opposite, that this centralizing, urbanizing, industrializing path where people are being invested in from the outside. You have to remember when investments come from the outside, the investors are always looking to get more wealth out than they put in. That's the whole idea of the investment. So 
Am I being too long-winded? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's lovely, actually, to just sit and listen to you. You don't know this, but I spent years fighting the North American Free Trade Agreement, the GATT oh. Agreement, the World oh, Bank, okay. the IMF. I was a whistleblower all during the um, 90s, and I found exactly what you're speaking to, that this kind of um, global plantation systemically destroying natural resources, natural societies, natural values, and and what are still or were uh, matrilineal societies have pretty much all come down, that, that the kind of um, even apartheid that we saw in South Africa is how we now yes. treat the rest of the earth. And so I'm, I was just, there's so many things you've written about, Helena, that I want to talk about, because I, I think one of them, it, it, as you've just pointed out, is that when we um, subsidize global corporations, which are pretty much Westerners, who I say go in and ransack nations, and then they get the contracts to rebuild them, but they're not for what the people need or even want. So you have airports with no airplanes and highways with no cars and electric stations with no electric wiring for things people don't need. And as you pointed out, what's happening is these cultures that were once um, so peaceful and and while people might say, well, it was subsistence life, it was pastoral or it was agricultural or but but now it's flooded with this imagery of sex and consumerism and having things a most people don't need anywhere in the world, but certainly in these other cultures where it goes even against their cultural ethos. So they're being subject to things and women in their underwear and men running around half naked on television when all of them look at their own bodies as being something that they're quite modest about. That's right. I mean, it's it's very, you know, that whole issue bringing up the naked bodies and so on is quite central, I think, to the reaction in the Islamic world where particularly in the Islamic world, the sense was that, that sex uh, was a private matter. And, of course, you know, people were uh, covering most of their bodies. And because of the great interest in oil and the, the geopolitical, uh, you know, imperialism from the U.S., you know, these uh, Middle Eastern areas became invaded, essentially, and going way back already... Well, apparently all the way back to Roosevelt, there was a deal with Saudi Arabia for oil, and and it was a, a, a real Faustian bargain because they were pouring money into Saudi Arabia, which then was used to fund fundamentalist schools throughout the region. And later on, with the opening up of Iran, with the Shah of Iran, and the sort of U.S. culture coming in, uh, you know, you had people going around in miniskirts, and, you know, that led to Khomeini and a fundamentalist reaction. And we know, you know, that Osama bin Laden was then later on funded by the U.S. to strengthen fundamentalist Islam as a way of getting rid of the Russians in Afghanistan. And so we have this whole trajectory that many people are familiar with, but I, but I have to say, you know, very few people have experienced what what I experienced. I mean, I have, I've had colleagues, but unfortunately, most of them are gone now, um, because it was in earlier days that you could actually live in cultures that were still 
able to keep their self-respect and to keep a basic self-reliance and control over their lives and um, and then to see the contrast with what happened in the name of development, in the name of progress. I basically, you know, try to make the point that this process robs men of their self-respect, of their identity. At the same time, it robs them of the ability to provide for their own needs and the needs of their families and communities. And when you take those things away from men, it's a recipe for violence. Mm-hmm. It's a recipe for you know, increased violence, and very often that violence will be turned against their own communities, you know, their own women and children. Uh, out of you know, it's, it's a sort of breakdown of identity, and it leads to irrational rage. And I think that's what we've witnessed. I mean, even now in, in South Africa, with you know, rape and and you know, apparently rape even of, of infants, and and we can see and it, we can see it around the world. And any psychologist will tell us that, of course. Yes, you know, you rob people of that ability to have a certain control over their lives and to maintain self-respect, and that's what you're going to get. Now, as it happens, this process of economic concentration that creates, you know, literally for the 99% uh, makes it harder to keep a roof over their head and to feed their families, so people are working harder and faster than ever before, In that situation, you know, we are literally now, seriously, we're looking at a situation where less than 1% of the global population has been pushing, especially in the last 30 years, for further deregulation, further globalization, giving more power to subsidized giant banks and corporations, and, and this deregulation through free trade treaties, as I say, has been pushed by less than 1%. I mean, let's remember 1% is over 70 million people. I would estimate that the people who actively pushed through these trade treaties as, as leaders have been, you know, perhaps 100,000, maybe, maybe a few million. But, you know, we're talking about less than one percent of the global population, and Which and you know when we look though at the the Western value at exploitation, which is what we're all talking about, is that everything is a utility and everything is here to be exploited. I mean, when we look at the the challenge, and we do have to take a take a break, Helena, is. That when we see the kind of displacement going on worldwide and with earth changes and sea levels rising and the 16 largest cities in the world are port cities. And as you rightly point out, people are leaving the royal area, rural areas into the cities. And now one out of every 110 persons planet wide is displaced. So we're talking about a tremendous movement of people. And just as we have this sort of global plantation through the corporatization, we see it through human slavery, which is the worst now that we than we know of in recorded history. And yet it doesn't really seem to make even a bleep in, in the Western media. And I'm not sure why, but it's very disconcerting. Helena Norberg-Hodge is with us. You can go to localfutures.org. That's www.localfutures.org. You're listening to 21st Century Radio. 
with Zoe and Bob Hieronymus. My name is Stefan Schwartz. It's my pleasure to be here. You're going to hear interesting conversation on this that you won't hear elsewhere. And you can find my work on www.schwartzreport.net or www.explorejournal.com forward stroke content forward stroke Schwartz. 21st Century Radio is leading this conversation of what a conscious world will look like. And Stefan's book, if you all have not gotten it yet, I highly recommend it. What he discovered is that there are eight Quaker principles that are behind all of the great successful social movements, whether it was public education or the suffragettes movement or public health care, or even Greenpeace was founded by a few well thinking Quakers. And the principles include things such as having no attachment to credit, um, sharing vision uh, about one's hope to change the world, but knowing it goes beyond yourself and your lifetime. And if you're just joining us, there's a woman who really lives these principles and has done so for many decades. Her name is Helena Norberg-Hodge, and her organization called Local Futures Dot org, where they work with communities around the world who are doing their very best to come out from the burden of globalization and um, the distribution of power into fewer and fewer hands in a way that takes it generally into transnational corporations and out of the local communities and cultures. So I want to come back to some of the things that you discovered when you lived, Helena, among the Ladakh people and you spoke about, you know, this rise of divisions, violence, and civil disorder that are really predictable now, meaning you and others have seen exactly the experience of Ladakh. I remember in one of your writings, you said that when you first got there and you noticed that all the people had fairly large houses and you asked a young man who was showing you around, well, where where do the poor people live? And he said, well, nobody's poor in Ladakh. And then eight years later, after all this globalization and sort of the the incursion, if you will, of Western values and Western pressures, um, you he was overheard telling some tourists if only they could help them because the Ladakhis are so poor. That's right. Yes, I mean, it, it, it is both a psychological pressure and a structural pressure that creates the sense, first of all, that anybody who lives in a small town and particularly anybody who farms or works on the land is made to feel backward, primitive, and stupid. Now, that psychological pressure, which is even uh, very, very strongly spelled out in school books, you know, throughout the so-called developing world, the school books will talk about how we've got to get these poor, illiterate farmers uh, off the farm into the city, and then at the same time, the investments, the investments in infrastructure, the investments in education, the investments in all the various tentacles of the economic system draw people into those cities. So it becomes virtually impossible to survive in a smaller town or as a small farm or as a small business. And it's really important that we, we see that this is true in the United States as well. And it is also true as a pressure and a, and a pattern in Scandinavia, in Europe, um, many people often believe that, well, there, you know, governments are doing things very differently. They are, but the de facto government has become a, an interlinked system 
of corporations and banks. And I think at a certain level, most people sort of know that. But sadly, uh, what I find is around the world that people tend to be looking, of course, you know, it's always why, but they tend to be looking at things through rather national lenses. Mm -hmm. And then they end up pointing the finger at government and blaming government and feeling this anger at how, you know, they see their lives becoming harder. They see they have to work longer and harder and all the time, the advertising and media industry is dangling this wealthy consumer lifestyle in front of their eyes and with the message that you too can make it and if you if you don't you're an idiot and and the fact is that the the path is becoming more and more difficult for the majority so there's this frustration and that's usually vented on government or on the other on the refugee or on that different ethnic or religious group um, and, of course, in the Islamic world, I think the fierceness and the anger is stronger than in, in many other groups. And I'm certainly not condoning or in any way accepting the violent and insane behavior of ISIL. Um, but I think if we don't understand where it comes from, there's absolutely no hope of solving it. And I, can I also just shift to say that for such a long time, it became so clear that structurally and centrally to these problems, there was this loss of self-esteem and loss of power and activity in local economies, local businesses. So I became an advocate of what I call the decentralization or localization also about 40 years ago. And I'm so thrilled that even though governments have ended up subsidizing global banks and corporations with larger and larger sums of our taxpayer money, despite that fact, there is a very powerful localization movement growing. And it's particularly focused on local food, which is the most important economic activity. We have to understand it as a, something that should be at the center of our economy. Uh, but, of course, under a very different framing of what we mean by economic activity, uh, it's the only thing we produce. Food is the only thing humans produce that every single person on the planet needs every day of their lives. We have a, an economic system at the moment that is separating us further and further from that source of food. And, and I'd like to add something, pressure. jump in here for a moment, if you don't mind, yeah, is that, absolutely. you know, for the last... 25 or so years I have done many shows against GMOs, genetically modified organisms and yes. foods. And I was so glad to see when I went to one of your organization's websites, Planet Local, which has a web series showcasing these extraordinary localization initiatives. Many of them are focused on food and saving seed. And I was just so relieved when I came across one of your films on Dr. Debal Deb in India about seed yes. saving, because this is also a theme that I've talked a lot about over the years, is that if we lose our heirloom seeds and these cartels yes. take over the earth with seed that not only is destructive to anything that eats it, but it's destroying the heirloom seed bank in every farm that it sits next to or in which it drifts by. And anyway, we know all the heinous kind of crimes that Monsanto and other cartels are um, are doing to small organic farmers. But talk to us a bit about this, about the local bites and your podcasts about this. 
Yes, well, we, this is, you know, uh, above all, I want to stress how at every step from starting with the seed, as you said, which is absolutely essential, to projects like edible schoolyards, you know, teaching children to grow food again, to farmers markets, to permaculture, to agroecological, um, uh, you know, uh, whole even at universities now, some of the alternative thinking professors starting to promote a direction which is diametrically opposed to the globalizing, urbanizing, commercializing path that that robs the majority and and just puts wealth into less than one percent. Well, and also destroys path. destroys the quality of the food, the nutrition of the human, and the well being oh. of the animal livestock. So yeah. it's like nobody wins except for. You know, I guess whoever it is that owns those corporations, the stockholder That's and the owners. That's right. And I, I, I do think that, you know, one – so just first to say that there is just a, a thrilling expression of human goodwill, ingenuity, intelligence, perseverance that's going on. And for me, it's so heartening because I'm so aware of these enormous pressures in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. I'm so aware of how there's been almost no support from the media, no support from government. You know, it's been people, power, and usually, you know, incredible small grassroots initiatives that have flowered and blossomed. And the key here, too, is that they should not grow by becoming bigger and bigger. They're growing by replication. This is something, again, that we should be discussing. You know, those of us who are working for a healthier, more sustainable, and more just world, we need to address the issue of scale as central and encourage that things are replicated instead of, you know, if there's a good thing, let's just help it get bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. In the natural world, nothing just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That is a completely unnatural path uh, in our artificial man-made system. And I also want to say that as part of understanding what's going on, what what gives me a lot of hope is not only that there are all these people doing really good things, which have also extended beyond food to local financing, to local business alliances, to even, you know, understanding in the broadest sense the need to bring back more indigenous species and protect not only seeds but also animal varieties and and even architectural varieties, if you like, and more traditional ways of doing things that were adapted to the specifics of ecosystems and climate. So there's this whole movement going on. What I see is perhaps the most important thing that we can do. You know, if we hear of all these horrors, we hear about this big bad system, let's realize that Much of it is run on ignorance, and it's the ignorance even of the people who are affected, negatively affected by the system. Unfortunately, because there's been so much propaganda for a particular path of progress, including the idea that bigger is better, that, for instance, includes the belief that we need big farms and big supermarkets to feed the world. We believe the propaganda that when food is cheaper in Walmart, it's because Walmart is more efficient. When we actually look at the truth, no, it's not more efficient. It's actually highly inefficient. And the really good news is that 
small, diversified agroecological farms can produce much, much more per unit of land and water. So in terms of real efficiency on a crowded, overpopulated planet, feeding ourselves through smaller, diversified farms is a way to get not only better food, healthier, healthier food, greater health for us, but greater health for ecosystems, reduce our dependence on the chemicals and the inputs which have been foisted on farmers. And so we're able to heal our health and the planet's health and our pocketbook. Literally, the path towards diversifying and localizing, particularly in food production, brings back greater economic prosperity to these communities where it's happening. It may sound unbelievable, but I really hope that people will pursue um, this avenue of thought and that they look at our website and the wealth of information that's there. But I want to add that most of these efforts have not had the funds to do massive research and come up with reams of statistics because the funding isn't there. And so you have to, and, and they also don't have the resources to promote and put out enough materials to spread the word. This is why I see education as activism as one of the most important things we can mm-hmm. do. Yeah, I, I, you know, I share that opinion, which is why I wanted to mention to you, and we played Stefan Schwartz's, um, you know, short promo about his recent book, The Eight Laws of Change. I think it is the best thing that I've read since Catherine Ingram's In the Footsteps of Gandhi, maybe 20 plus years ago. Uh, about really what what makes for successful mass movements and what Stefan discovered after looking at all of these people, whether it was Martin Luther King or Gandhi or individuals and small groups that amounted to enormous change in the world, is that they all became the things they wanted to see. And you know, it's it's a spiritual teaching and it's a true it's a true teaching that if if you if Gandhi was asked, you know, how did you throw the English out of India? And he said, well, we didn't throw the English out of India. They left. And so then Uh, asked again, why did they leave? He said, because of who we are. And uh, and he pointed out it wasn't what we said, though, that was part of it. And it wasn't what we did, though, that was part of it. It was who we are. And I think that that's what Local Futures is pointing out worldwide, that there are human beings awake, wide awake worldwide in all parts of this planet who understand the the dire circumstances we're in. And if we continue to enable this corporatization of Planet Inc., um, we are going to have a very short spell in the future. And earth changes are hard enough, but it's almost like, you know, the, the local work is how any community survives anything. And any community that's ever gone through a natural disaster knows you're on your own. And it's really a description about good times as well as bad times. And so I'm just so grateful, Helena, that I I found your organization and your beautiful essay about globalization fueling terrorism and fundamentalism. And then you're profiling with films and podcasts and interviews all of these beautiful groups of people around the world who also hear the same song, which is Restoration. Well, I'm so thrilled to meet you, and I'm so thrilled that you have a radio program because, you see, in a certain way, we have to be a little bit careful about the idea that <clears throat> that we as individuals have to be the change. We've got to be 
really clear about the need to link up with others mm-hmm. and that we should be looking at you know changing the I to a we, getting together where we live, try to identify some like-minded people, get together on a regular basis and try to explore how can we first of all learn more about what's actually going on in the world and how can we together be part of the change and, and start living the change. I'd like to actually also to make the point that we've just today launched a paper on globalization and climate, and we're basically calling it climate change or system change. Mm-hmm. And we're outlining how big corporations have managed to distort the climate debate, first of all, to again point the finger at the individual, as Al Gore did, very much distorting the whole framing making individuals believe that, you know, by just changing their light bulbs or not driving their cars or not going on holiday, that this is going to be what's going to reduce emissions when it's a, it's a, it's a joke. I mean, this is a fraction of the emissions. The big slate of hand that's happened is that corporations, by definition, have moved to where labor is cheap, in other words, to where to poor countries. Then they've lobbied in the whole climate debate, that poor countries should be allowed to continue increasing emissions. This framing, uh, along with pointing the finger at individuals in the West, uh, along with also uh, insisting on market solutions like carbon trading and and an overall financialization of nature, has distorted the debate. Now, the really good news is that with Naomi Klein's book and the whole new economy movement, there are more people beginning to realize that the main reason for climate change is globalization. And that's what we need to focus on. And that's where we need to get more informed, more, more informing ourselves, but then helping to inform others. So I very much hope that people will send our paper around. It's on our website now because, again, it doesn't just highlight how the globalizing, corporatizing of our minds, of our governments, of our world is the biggest problem, but it shows that there is a grassroots movement. We need to remember that even something like 100 or more mayors in the U.S., wanted to ratify the Kyoto Protocol way back when. So from the bottom up, there is still this huge goodwill, intelligence, and perseverance. Exactly. And, and I, you know, and, and it's, we have to take our last break of the evening, but it is interesting how during the 60s and 70s there was this sort of awakening of the world, of the world mind, and there was this global, you know, act local, think global, or act globally and think locally. Now it's very clear that we can think globally but act locally. And, and all of us, I think, who have been in the activist community who saw um, in our efforts against in terms of trying to protect the environment with international law, that we would have fared a lot better working in the state courts. So we'll be right back. Our guest is Helena Norberg-Hodge. Go to www.localfutures.org. You will be so glad you did. Hello, I'm Jason Gregory. I'm the author of The Science and Practice of Humility, The Path to Ultimate Freedom. You can find out all the information about me from www.jasongregory.org. You are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zoe Hieronymus. 
A wise woman is with us now. Her name is Helena Norberg-Hodge, and her organization is localfutures.org. I encourage all of you to visit it, to read their papers, to share it. I found one of her more recent articles, How Globalization Fuels Terrorism and Fundamentalism, so um, astute and so right on target from everything I've understood myself and everything I have thought problematic with um, globalization and the loss of sovereignty as just one issue. One of the things you all have been working on, and I just think it's fantastic, is this international ecocide law. You, you write that ecocide, quote, is the extensive damage to, destruction of, or loss of ecosystems to such an extent that peaceful enjoyment by the inhabitants of that ecosystem has been or will be severely diminished. And you're hoping that this will be part of the Fifth International Crime Against Peace for the Ecocide Law. Talk to us a little bit about this effort and and what's going on globally with it. Well, I have to say that I want to stress above that the movement that's growing to resist the further deregulation of banks and corporations through trade treaties. You know, with the new treaties, TTIP and TPP, which bring in clauses that allow corporations to sue governments in a more and more aggressive way. You know, it's been going on, as you know, I'm sure, for a long time that these global trade treaties are handing over the rights, basically handing over our democracy, completely abandoning it, to give the right to corporations to sue governments if they do anything to protect their workforce or their environment that's going to in any way impede the profit-making potential of outside investors. Now, this means that a Swedish nuclear power company is suing Germany for 3.7 billion euros because they decided they wanted to phase out nuclear after Fukushima. It means that Philip Morris, you know, is suing countries uh, if they dare to put warnings on their cigarette packaging. It's, it's ongoing. So I would say that, yes, we are definitely promoting and supporting this attempt to bring in a law for ecocide, but I would say that preeminent is for people to unite around the world with clarity about this trade deregulation, this path of globalization, because that is where, as part of that insistence that, yes, we want new trade treaties, all right, and those trade treaties are now going to start regulating rampant business uh, exploitation and protecting, you know, we're going to have a law on ecocide, we're going to have really meaningful protections for human rights. Um, But we've got to keep our eye on that economic juggernaut. Having said that, you know, we encourage what we call both resistance and renewal. We want to try to really encourage people to be willing to think holistically and not be afraid to face this giant juggernaut and to see that, yes, it is a very powerful system, but it's only so powerful because we have been ignorant about how it works. Most people have not seen these trade treaties as so centrally destructive. And, you know, I, I, you know, I sort of feel like the entire membership of the Tea Party, for instance, if they really understood what is the real 
invisible hand behind what they despise, which is big government, if they could understand where the real enemy is, we could have an incredibly powerful movement of people from every walk of life, left, right, center, environmental, social, you know, whether your concern is GMOs, whether it's climate change, whether it's uh, the whole list of things that, you know, are all adding up to people feeling overwhelmed, but all of these issues, poverty, the slave trade, the abuse of women, every single issue is either created or exacerbated by this economic system. And there's such a potential for a linking of hands across divides to say enough is enough. And if people also right now connect to the movement of renewal, of localization, that already exists, you will find it if you start looking for it in your region. You'll certainly find examples on our website. And you will see that there is so much more happening than you ever dreamed possible. I'm a pioneer of this. I've been actively promoting localization for years. And I am every day astounded by how many things I don't know about, you know, new things I hear about, and how much more is happening than I realize. Uh, and we're even beginning to see, because of the pressure from below, that some local and even regional governments are starting to do things a bit better. So there is real hope there, and there, you know. But there are certain key issues that people have to rethink. Well, look, I want to encourage, and I thank you again. Unfortunately, we're out of time this evening. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Helena Norberg Hodge. I want you all to follow up with their work of their organization. It's a wonderful group, Local Futures. www.localfutures.org, and definitely together we can make a change. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner, and I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. And remember, we do need more love in the world.